nine years ago and 59 years ago. This morning I want to talk to you about about 7,000 years ago. We're going to go back to Genesis and talk about the foundation of our world, the foundation of our civilization. And this morning specifically I want to focus in on the foundation for marriage. Foundation for marriage. So follow along with me in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to cover a lot of territory. We're going to go from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight that was good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx shone are, stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the, the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds in the heaven, of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the Lord, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And when the, the, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Read verse 24 and 25 with me. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So there was a little girl that she asked her dad, Dad, where did people come from? He said, well, honey, they came from Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had children. They had children all the way to us. So we came from Adam and Eve. And the little girl went and asked her mom, so mom, I was asking dad, and I want to ask you, where did, where did people come from? She said, well, honey, over millions and millions of years, monkeys evolved into more sophisticated creatures, and eventually we became man. So we, we came from the monkeys. And the little girl was confused. She went back to her dad. She said, dad, you said we came from Adam and Eve. Mom says we came from monkeys. I don't understand. That, that, that doesn't agree. And she, the dad goes, well, honey, I was talking about my side of the family. She was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> but what we see here in Genesis, in this passage right here, I'm going to divide up into several sections, and I'm going to spend the majority on the last part, but I'm going to kind of fly through the first one. What we're going to see numerically is one man in a garden, two special trees in the garden, three rules for the garden, four rivers from the garden, and I wanted to go five principles of marriage, but there were seven there, so there goes my sermon series there. But anyway, but they, and then I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the seven principles of marriage. The first will be pretty much introduction. It says these are the generations. It's the same word for Genesis. These are the beginnings of the heavens and the earth. And what we see here is some people really have an issue with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And they'll sit there and go, wait a minute. God already told us in Genesis 1 everything every, that happened. And now all of a sudden it's like he's starting over or what's happening here? And there are skeptics and, and uh, people who don't take the Bible literally and who want to say the Bible's full of contradictions and Moses didn't really write Genesis. And they'll say all kinds of crazy stuff that, that there's two different creation stories and they put them both side by side. Which nothing is farther from the truth. If you read a newspaper or if you read an article on Yahoo News or on any website, you will see the first paragraph gives you a summary of everything that happened. Like if you read the paper and say, you know, yesterday the Houston Cougars made a great come from behind victory and they won the game, you know, in the last quarter. And then the next paragraph, I say, I'll start off by saying, in the first quarter, Memphis scored first. They're like, wait a minute, I thought the game was over. I thought Houston Cougars won. Now they're going back and starting over. That's what good journalism does. They give you a summation at the beginning, and then they go through and give you details. And that's exactly what Moses has done here. That's not a second creation story. The first is an overview of everything, of all seven days. The second goes into great detail and is a commentary on day six. And so the day six is the most important day. Why is that? Why is day six the most important day? Because that's when Adam and Eve were created. That's when created in God's image. So some people look at this and say, well, there's two authors, at least in Genesis. Some people say there's four. No, Jesus says there was one. He says Moses wrote Genesis. Paul says the same thing. And I will put more scholarly trust in Jesus and Paul before I will all these other uh, liberal critics. So there's not two authors and there's not contradictions. In fact, we'll cover some of the so-called contradictions in the passage and, and you'll see for yourself with even just a, a cursory glance, you'll say, oh, well, that, that makes sense. Um, and it also, when people compare Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they'll, in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim. Remember, what does the I am at the end of something mean? What does it do? It makes it plural. Good for y'all. Like the cherub, if there was more than one cherub, it'd be cherubim, seraph, seraphim. Well, God has more than one person. He has one God expressed in three persons, so it's Elohim. 
But in Genesis 2, there's a shift, and the word for God is Yahweh. And they'll say, well, that's two different styles, two different writers. No, no, no. Moses knew exactly what he was doing because Elohim is the God who is the creator. So when he's talking about the, seven, the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, he uses the, the creator God name. But when he talks about Yahweh, that's the personal God who made man in his image. So he uses a more personal pronoun. It'd be like if I was in a formal setting, I would say Dr. Stan Byers. But if we're in an informal setting, I would call him Stan. Or I'd say, hey, brother, am I talking about, am I talking about two different people? It just depends on the context, which is what helps us with everything. So it goes on to say, um, in the next passage here, right here, um, it says there was no bush, which literally means a shrub, of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant, which literally means an herb of the field, had not yet sprung up. And see, see, ha, ha, contradiction. On day three, God created all the plants, and now it says there wasn't any bushes and there wasn't any small plants. Again, look at it carefully. If, if on day three, God created trees and plants that were seed-bearing. He had not yet created shrubs and herbs, which are not seed-bearing. God saved those for the garden because those require human uh, interaction. So there, again, not a contradiction, but people will look at that. Now, let me ask you a question. If you heard someone say this was a contradiction, and you'd be like, oh, wow, the Bible does have contradictions. Guess I can't trust the Bible anymore. Why would you not dig a little deeper? If someone told you that your spouse made up a total lie, oh, well, I guess my spouse is a liar. You wouldn't dig just a little bit deeper. You wouldn't get their side of the story. You wouldn't investigate. See, when you love someone, you give them the benefit of the doubt. And if you love God, when you come across something in the Bible, it's like, hey, I don't know if this makes sense. Do you say, oh, well, I guess the atheists are right? Or do you say, no, God must be right. I just need to dig a little deeper. And again, that, that was an easy one to solve. Just look at the words there in Hebrew and look at the words in, in chapter 1, and it's describing different plants that God had not made yet. Um, in, in Genesis 1, on the third day, God created plant life. And again, these, these two things, the shrubs and the herbs, had not even mentioned that because they were designed for specific cultivation. How many of you have like herbs in your kitchen or in, in your garden, right? They require a different level of attention than, than an apple tree does or an orchard does or anything like that. So that's what God was waiting for to put man in the garden to do this. So let's start off with the one man in the garden. There, it says there was no man to work the ground and there was a mist that was going up from the land. Now, it says there was no man. There's people who will say, well... There was millions of men and across the planet, you know, but God then chose Adam as just one man and then worked with him so that Adam and Eve's story and, and evolution can fit together. Well, this Bible says there was no man. There was nobody to work the garden. God had not. And so you see here that Adam is the original man. Jesus believed in a literal Adam. Paul believed in a literal Adam. So I believe in a literal Adam. I, I believe that also theologically, you can't mesh the two. You can't have millions of years of evolution, which requires death. It requires that these pre-humans and these Neanderthals and these Piltdown men are dying. And the Bible says death did not come into the world until Adam sinned. So you can't jive the two. Don't try to, to mesh evolution and creation and the Bible all together. They don't work. They're, it's bad science and it's bad theology. And it says that there was a mist. 
um, we now discovered just in the past few years that there's more water under the earth than we ever thought possible. In fact, there's more water under the crustacean of the earth than there is in all the oceans that cover the earth. Making the flood possible, because they used to say, oh, there's no way it rained enough to cover the whole earth. Now we know there was, because what did the Bible say? It didn't say that the rain covered the earth. It said the fountains of the deep burst forth, and that's what covered the earth. And now we know that there's plenty of water under there. But prior to this, this is how we know that Noah had not even seen rain yet. Because it was like a greenhouse effect prior to the flood. There was just a mist and humidity in the air. You think South Texas is humid. The garden was probably really humid. And there was a constant mist coming up from that. And, and, that, and that fits in with the Bible again as well. Science doesn't contradict the Bible. Science supports the Bible. And it says, And then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. Well, why dust? And you look at the contrast here. We go from dust, the simplest, dirtiest little thing, to the breath of God. Which tells me that God can make something wonderful out of anything. That we're just dust. Without God, without the breath of God, you and I are just dirt. Think about how dirty your house gets. When you're sweeping your house and you're vacuuming, you're doing everything to get rid of dust. And God can take the thing that you even want to get rid of and turn something beautiful into it with the breath of life. And so that's the theme of this passage, the breath of life. So let me ask you this question. What two things has God breathed life into? What two things? The first one I've already given you, who is, which is what? Adam, right? Mankind. We have the breath of life in us. That's what makes us different than animals. What is the second thing that God has breathed into? What did God breathe into to make it alive? What? So I think somebody said it. His word, yes. The word of God. The word inspiration means God breathed. God breathed into man and he became eternally living. And God breathed into his word and it is eternally alive. What did Jesus say? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, what, will never pass away. You will live forever, and God's word will live forever. And guess what? Those two things that have so much in common, the breath of life and eternality, were meant to go together. And Satan wants to do everything in his power to separate God's people from God's word. He wants to distract you. He wants to put a device in your hand so you'll just be scrolling all day. He wants to put a big screen in front of you. He wants to get work to, to be done. All kinds of stuff. He wants, but we are designed because God breathed into both of us to be eternally together. Spending time in the Word of God is one of the best things you'll ever do to keep breathing life into your, to your spirit. So both of us are spiritually alive. Both of us make new life possible. You see, Men and women can create new life, which is different than the animals, because you are now passing on the breath of life. That child is cuter than a puppy, but it also is better than a puppy because it's in the imago Dei. It is in the image of God. And so, but guess what gives life? The Word of God. The Word of God breathes life. You know, I can tell interesting stories. I can show pictures. I can do all kinds of stuff, and it might make you feel good and say, wow, that was really good. But nothing is so more important than when we preach that we preach the Word of God. I took my kids recently, I say recently, like four months ago, to a youth event in Santa Fe, and they had this special speaker here. He's nationally known. He comes all over the place, and he's been on television, all kinds of stuff. And he preached, but he only used one scripture the entire time Spoke for like 55 minutes, 
And even the one verse he quoted was like a fraction of a verse that he took out of context. And then he asked the kids who wants to get saved. Faith comes by hearing, and what? Hearing by the Word of God. It's the Word of God that changes heart. And yes, he has a powerful testimony. He has a powerful story. But let me tell you something. Your powerful testimony does not change hearts like the Word of God does. We need the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So what has the power to change your heart? Not my stories, not my jokes, all that stuff. It's the word of God that changes things. Also, when we compare the pe people in the Bible, both are tools that are used by the Holy Spirit. We also see that both reveal the Imago Dei. The image of God is revealed in us. That's why when you murder a person, it's capital punishment because you have desecrated the image of God. But guess what else reveals the image of God? God's word. What do we behold in the scriptures? The glory of Christ with the image of Christ. We also see that the Bible and people are both designed to speak about Jesus. God's word, it's all about Jesus. Our life and our word should be all about Jesus. Now, if you look at the chiastic structure, for those of you who knew, chiastic structure is the, a, a, an Eastern way of talking where we think linearly. We start at the beginning, we go chronologically to the end. But what they will do in Hebrew is they'll start off with something and they'll end with that same thing. So you see here that there's no shrubs or herbs that exist. And at the end, he talks about how the shrubs and the herbs do exist. And then he works his way in and how God says he had no man and there was no rain. And then at the end, God intervenes and he introduces a man. And there's no man to work the ground. And in the end, there's the man to work the ground. And then the myths from God. And then there's a garden from God. And you see the parallels there. And then God creates man. And man becomes a living creature. And that emphasis on man. But what's at the heart of it tells us what the main message is. Is that God gives life. That's what this passage is about. He is a life-giving God. He is the one that is our source you see, as human beings, we can get so busy that we're just going through life. But what God wants is for life to go through us. He wants us to exude life. There's people walking around this planet who have a heartbeat and a brainwave, but they're dead. They are the original zombies. They are the walking dead. And they are living a life of death. And you and I, what makes us different is not, we've tried harder. No. We've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No, we have the grace of God that the life has breathed into us and now we have been restored and we are supposed to share that life with others. Jesus says, I am the life. So when we share Jesus, we are sharing the life that God intended by breathing it into Adam and Eve and in his word. In John 20, verse 20, he says, and he, after the resurrection, Jesus shows the disciples, hey, look at my hand. See the scars? See my side? And then his disciples, it would have been this side, by the way. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, what did Jesus do? He breathed on them. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, remember Genesis 2? When God breathed on man and gave him physical life, I'm breathing on you and giving you spiritual life. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit of God. So Jesus is saying, I'm the creator. I'm the one who breathed into Adam, and I'm the one who's breathing life into you. Back to verse, chapter 2, 
It says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast. Now, this is what's called pluperfect. How many remember the word pluperfect from grammar school? I barely remembered it. This was a nice refresher, okay? In Hebrew, they don't have this. Like, if I say, hey, I arrived, but then I say, I had arrived, what am I saying? I'm saying a more perfect tense of like, no, I've actually been here for a while. If I say I've arrived, that means I could have been a second ago, whatever. But when I say I had arrived, that means I've been here before, whatever the context is before what we're talking about. Well, in Hebrew, they don't have a pluperfect tense. So some translations say the Lord God formed every beast. And people are like, what? He just got done forming the animals on day six. Now he's doing it again. What's going on? No, no. He's saying the Lord of God had already done this. If, for example, if I told you a story, if I say that, you know, Greg went out and bought a, went to the dealership. Greg bought a car. Greg drove the car home. Greg parked the car in the garage that he had built. Or if I said he built, you'd be like, wait a minute. He came home and then he started building a garage and then he put the car in? No. In the context, I'm saying he had built gives you the pluperfect tense. And that's what's missing in some translations. So some people will read an older translation and say, well, see, God's making it all over again. This is another kind of creation. Here's the contradiction. No, it's not. It, it's, it's a pluperfect tense that is needed in English to understand the Hebrew there. So it says, and the heavens and earth, and he brought them to man. Do you remember another time in the Bible when God brought animals to somebody? Who is it? Noah. Yeah. Noah, that story of Noah is a hyperlink back to Adam. And you know where does Noah end up? In a garden, in a vineyard, right? And what does he do? He fails again. Remember, Noah gets drunk and has the, all, the weird situation with his son, all that. So here is a man in a garden failing, hyperlinked back to another man in a garden failing that God had brought animals to. And so interesting, you'll see these hyperlinks all, all throughout the Bible. You see Jesus in a garden, but what does he do? He succeeds, right? And Jesus is in the wilderness, and the wild animals were there with him. There's a lot of hyperlinks in the Bible there. And, it said, and he brought them to, to Adam to see what he would call them. So God is like, okay, hey, go ahead. Let me just stand back. I just want to watch and see what you do. And God is using an object lesson. So now, again, there wasn't every species brought to Adam. There was every kind. which, So in other words, there was two canines. That there didn't have to be dogs and coyotes and all those things like that. There were just two canines, two felines. He didn't have to name tiger, lion, all that stuff. Just two felines. That's my theory on it anyway. And that's the exact same thing Noah took on the ark. So here's Adam all day long naming animals. Every kind. You know, we got kingdom, family, class, kind, all that stuff. And so he's naming all them. He's classifying. In fact, the word call them means a, a scientific designation. It means a classification. He's not just naming them, he's classifying them. And of course, Adam's born intelligent, born genius, because God didn't create a dummy. And everything he called him, God said, okay, whatever you've called him, that's the name. And another thing about naming is, it means authority. When you name something, that means you have the authority over that. What do NFL and Major League Baseball teams do with their stadiums. They give someone, what, naming rights. And so we can call it NRG Stadium or Pepsi Stadium or Coca-Cola Stadium, whatever. And they have, they have the authority over all the advertising and everything that goes on that. When you name something, you, it means you have the authority over that. In fact, it, 
it's not as much a big deal today because we name a kid whatever just sounds good, you know. But back then, when you name someone, you were saying, this is, this is what I want for them in their life and that you exercise authority over them. And so who has authority over the animals? Adam does, and he shows it by the, the process of naming them. But what's interesting is prior to this, who named every star? Who named the earth the land? Who named the waters the sea? And again, he didn't give a name to the sun and the moon because at the time Moses is writing it, what's happening? People are worshiping the sun and the moon. So he calls it the greater light and the lesser light. And who gave them all their names? God did. But who named all the creatures? Adam did. What's so interesting about this is that man can tame and breed and have dominion over animals. But only God has authority over nature. In other words, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, the movement of stars. All of that is in God's control. That's why when a, the recent tornado that came through Pearland and Don got caught up in that, like literally got caught up in it. And uh, we call that, on your insurance claim, what is that act called? An act of God, okay? So God has, those things are out of our control. That's what the insurance company will tell you. But if your dog bites somebody, you're not going to call that an act of God because who's supposed to have dominion over the dog? You are. It's even written into our laws. So people have authority over nature and over animals. Now, so Jesus came, though, as the only man who exercised authority over both. Jesus, he's asleep in the boat, and the storms are raging. And these, these experienced, seasoned sailors, fishermen, who spent their life on the water are like, we're about to die. That's how bad of a typhoon this was that stirred up. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? And he gets up, and what does he do? Peace, be still, and instantly it was calm. Not just the storm and air stop, but the water was placid. And he shows that, hey, I'm a different kind of man. You kind of man, you'll have dominion over animals. You can catch fish, you can train dogs, but I can train the wind. I can stop hurricanes. I can calm the seas, showing that he was the God-man. So we go from one man in the garden to two special trees in the garden. Two special trees. So God planted a garden. Think about that. We, we just breeze through that. God created the world, and I'm sure most of the plants all was just jungle and forest and wilderness, but God says, you know what, I'm going to make a garden. What is the difference between a garden and a wilderness? One word, organization. So God organized the plants. He put them maybe in rows or nice formations. He did all kinds of great things. That would have been an amazing garden to see. <laughs> Adam didn't even plant the garden. God did. And he said, okay, I've, I've done this garden. I'm sure Adam was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And those of you who are into gardening, I'm sure you could appreciate this. But I have a question that I ask octogenarians. That's older people for those who went to Alvin High School. And octogenarians, when I ask them, I say, what, what do you have a garden? And when I meet people in their 90s or even in 100-something, nine times out of ten they'll say Yes. And so if you want to live long, there's a, there's a hint for you there. I think there's a lot involved in that. I think we're doing what God intended us to do. We're out in the, the light, getting vitamin D and all kinds of things that are good for us. But I think there's also that sense of looking forward to something that, you know, you know six months from now I'll have tomatoes or I'll have watermelon. And there's just that constantly looking forward to something that's good for you. Well, God made this garden for Adam. And he made it east in Eden, which interesting, you study directions in the Bible. When Jesus returns, where, what direction is he coming from? Out of the east, right. It's interesting to study directions in the Bible, but we won't do that this morning. 
And then so he has the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, but there's a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's interesting, we usually talk about that tree, but we don't talk about the tree of life as much. So what's the difference between the two trees? Here's a short video that can explain it way better than I can. So make sure the volume's up for this, would you? Here we go. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the tree of life. So what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it. Or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way, but Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it, helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden, which is also a kind of temple with the tree of life at its center providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. So where will we see the tree of life next? It'll be in heaven. 
And what's interesting is, it says here that God told them to eat of all the trees except for one. So does that mean they were eating of the tree of life? I believe so. I believe if they were obeying God's command to eat of all the trees, and he's only told one prohibition. He didn't say don't eat of the tree of life. In fact, he said eat of all the trees except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I think that they were eating of the tree of life, but one day they chose, hey, let's try this tree, the forbidden tree, instead. Now, I, I don't want to go ahead of next week too much, but when Eve saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what three things did she say about it? That it was pleasant to the eye and good for food. And what was the third? And able to make someone wise. Well, here God says every tree, every tree made was pleasant to the eye and good for food. So the three things that she saw, two of them were, were true with the others. And the third one, where did she get this whole idea that it was able to make someone wise? That was from the lie of Satan. So she wasn't getting anything out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that she couldn't have gotten from any other tree except what she got from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was death. And that's what Satan does. He plays a shell game with you. He does a bait and switch. He offers you something and then he takes it away and it's not near as good as what you thought it was going to be. And sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve when Eve ate them out of house and home, right? So... We go from these two special trees to, I'm going to skip ahead and do these out of order, the four rivers from the garden. Four rivers from the garden. So the river flows out of Eden. So Eden was probably exceptionally beautiful. And, you know, whenever I think of beautiful gardens, I think of these streams that are made, whether they're man-made or natural. And so this one river that flows out turns into four rivers. And we have the Pishon, as we read before. We've got the Gihon. And then we've got the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, which two have you heard of before? The Tigris and Euphrates. The other two, we have no idea where they are or where they were. And why would that be? Because, because of the flood. In fact, the Tigris and Euphrates, where they were in the Garden of Eden, probably aren't very close or exactly where they were after the flood. The, the Bible says in 1 Peter that the flood changed the earth. It talks about the earth that was and the earth that now is. You wouldn't even recognize the two being distinguished by the catastrophic flood. So I think the current Tigris and the current Euphrates rivers are named after the ones in the Bible, but may not be exactly where they were when, Eve saw, when Adam and Eve saw them. So what can we learn from these four rivers? <clears throat> well, there's all kinds of theories, and most of them are crazy. <laughs> um, for example, Augustine... One of the early church fathers thought the four rivers were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four gospels going out into the world, spreading the gospel, which is the river of life. Well, that's really good spiritual devotional talk, but there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that was true. And so you can make all kinds of guesses and theories, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything. If you know of something, let me know. But really, the only thing we can get with this is just to stay with the obvious. Life-giving water came out of the garden and watered the rest of the, the area. And, that, and God was thinking ahead. And maybe that's a picture of life flowing forth or whatever you want to do. But we can't say specifically what it actually was. Now let's go back to the three rules of the garden. And the reason I did them out of order is because I want to do them in the biblical order. And so the three, there was three basic rules of the garden. Number one was work it and keep it. That's one and the same. Number two was eat. He commanded them, look what it says, he commanded them to eat. 
and I want you to eat of all the varieties. So if you don't like broccoli, you would have been in trouble in the garden, okay? If you, if you don't like asparagus, there's something wrong with you. Anyway, I, like, I love asparagus, but they're commanded, hey, go out there and have a, a ba- well-balanced diet. And then, of course, the third command is, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, again, doesn't mention the tree of life, he says, you shall not eat. Of all the trees of the garden, you can freely eat. And again, I believe, including the tree of life, which is why they would have lived eternally, but this bad choice made them die. He says, you shall not eat. So there's two positive commands and one negative command of what they're not to do. And then after he names all the animals, and he does everything, the Lord God says, it's not good. Now, that's really Interesting, because what has he been saying every day at the end of creation? It is good, it is good, it is good, with the exception of day two, because he didn't actually create anything, he just separated things. So five of the six days he's saying it is good, and now all of a sudden, in a perfect world, he's saying it's not good. Now, the not good here doesn't mean bad or immoral, it means incomplete. It is not complete. And here's why, that man is alone, and that's why God had Adam name all the animals because here comes, you know, a male and female of each, male and female of each, male and female of each, you know, and he's gone through this, you know, hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many, and God's like, let me see if he will catch on that there's only one human and it's not male and female. Maybe he will see his need. And you know, God does that to us often, doesn't he? Where he wants us to see the need. The reason we will go unemployed for a while is because he wants us to see the need that he's the one that provides for us. The reason that we may go single for a part of our life is because he wants us to see the need. If we were given everything instantly when we asked for it, we would never really feel a full reliance upon God. But God wants us to see the need, to see even sometimes loneliness so that we will appreciate when God answers the prayer. And that brings us to the most important part of the message, the seven principles of marriage. And I'm going to fly through these kind of quickly. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the heaven, and every beast of the field. But, and the but is the conjunction saying, look, there's a connection between him naming animals and not having a wife. Because he saw that all the animals had that, and there's partnership. I want you to see that. God says, I want you to learn that lesson. So the first thing we see here is strategic equality. Strategic equality. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep, the first anesthesia in the Bible, to fall upon man. And when he slept, he took one of his ribs, the first surgery in the Bible, and then he closed it up. By the way, the word rib here, it's not literally just the bone. The Hebrew word says more like his whole side. So there's sinew, there's some flesh, there's some bone. It's, it, it, it's like a side of ribs, literally. Okay, So he took a section out of man, which... I find fascinating because I'm pretty sure that left a scar. And you know, every day when Adam looked down and saw whichever side it was, he thought, yep, that's where my wife came from, you know. And just that scar reminded him of something beautiful. Does that sound familiar? Jesus shows his scars and reminds of something beautiful. We'll talk about that more here in a little bit. But He didn't take it out of a bone from his foot, which would have been symbolic of her being under his foot. He didn't take it out of his head, meaning she would be over him. He took it out of his side, showing that she would be equal with him and that she would be a partner in life. A lot of people have a hard time with what we call complementarian uh, theology. And that is that men and women are equal, but have different roles. And that God has made the man the head of the house and the woman to be under his authority. That doesn't mean that she is less than he is. 
In any situation, someone has to be the quarterback, to use a sports analogy. And there are, like, for example, today our, our president is Joe Biden. He used to be the vice president to a Barack, Barack Obama. And so Barack Obama used to be the one in charge, and he answered to him, and now it's the other way around. Barack Obama's not just a citizen now, but he would still have show us respect and authority to that. They are equal. You know, someone can make a case that Barack Obama's more intelligent, you know, but they're they equal as far as men, as far as their rights, but some, only one person can be president. And, they, and so in a family, one person needs to be the leader, but that doesn't mean that a man could abuse it. In fact, it's an opportunity to serve, as we'll see momentarily. The second thing we see is sovereign compatibility. Sovereign compatibility. It says, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. God brought Adam his wife. He didn't say, okay, now, Adam, I want you to go out in all the world and find yourself a wife. He brought her to him. And that's a beautiful thing, too. You know, I don't know how you met. Maybe your pastor introduced you. Maybe you met at school. Maybe you've been dating since high school. Maybe you met in college. Maybe something like that. But we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. If you're single or single again, you need to be praying every day for the person God has for you, that God would bring him to you, that God would bring her to you. Because I tell you what, when we rush that situation, we can really mess it up. And everybody said, amen, yeah. You, you don't want to mess that decision up. It's all too important. Let, let Trust in God's sovereignty that he will bring someone that is right for you. Number three, we see sacrificial authority. Look what Adam says. He basically is the first song. I believe he's actually literally singing this. That this at last is bone of my bones. She's part of me. She's flesh of my flesh, which reinforces that there was more than just a rib taken out. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of me. She comes from deep inside of me, from right from my side. And we are meant to fit together spiritually, emotionally, physically. We are, we're made for each other. And he sees this equality, but he also sees this as an opportunity to serve her. That, yes, I'm putting authority, but I'm like to take care of her. You know, when, when a mom has a baby, who's in charge? The mom is. But what is the mom doing? She's feeding the child, changing the diapers, bathing them, dressing them, serving, serving, serving. The one in authority is doing the serving. And Jesus comes, and he's the head of his church. But what does he do for the disciples? He washes their feet. Husband, this is a beautiful opportunity for you to see that God puts you in charge of your family and your wife not to rule over her, but to minister to her, to serve her, to love her, to cherish her. And that, that's the kind of, of, if you do that in a loving, sacrificial type of authority, almost all women be willing to say, yeah, I'd marry that guy. And so we need to take that seriously as, as God sets this pattern for us that that our wives are someone that was taken out of us. The fourth thing we see is a separate identity. And you see three things in this verse, leaving, cleaving, and receiving. Leaving, cleaving, and receiving in verse 24. It's a separate identity. He said, therefore, and Moses is doing commentary now, because Adam and Eve don't have a father and a mother, right? So he's doing this as a commentary for us to read later, that therefore, because God created this way, you need to leave your father and your mother. Many of you can speak from experience that living with in-laws is not a good idea. <laughs> it needs to be as short as possible, and if not at, and not at all, if, if possible. Because we are meant to have a separate household, a separate identity. Because think about it. 
When, you, when a man and a woman come together, she brings her family history, he brings his family history, and all of a sudden they need to create a new way of doing family. And you know what? If you hold on to, not just literally, but figuratively, your mom and dad and try to bring that into your home, it's going to mess. Well, we don't cut the turkey that way. My parents never did it that way. What do you mean watch football on Thanksgiving? We don't do that. We're supposed to. What do you mean? And we just start arguing about stuff because we never did it that way. Mom's way. Dad's way. No. We need to compromise and create a new way. Be careful of what you bring into a family. You're not supposed to be a husband like your dad. You're supposed to be a husband like Jesus Christ. You don't need to be a mom and a, and a wife like your mom. You need to be a mom and a wife like the bride of Christ, the church. And when we bring theology into our marriage instead of tradition in our marriage, our marriage is much healthier. So a marriage needs to have its own separate identity. And you're, it'll, it'll probably confound both mother-in-laws. You, what do we mean you don't do that? No, this is our way of doing things. And we start a new tradition here with our family. So why were Adam and Eve so happy? It's because neither one of them had in-laws. There you go. So <laughs> number five, sacred exclusivity. This is the cleaving. Sacred. Marriage is not as, I, as one person on The View said, it's just a license to have sex. And that's absolutely not what it is. Marriage is the beautiful picture of a holy, sacred bond between a man and a woman that is meant to be exclusive. Monogamy is what the Bible has designed. Our world is going totally against this. They will make fun of you if you're monogamous. They will call you names if you're a virgin and you're unmarried. They will call you all kinds of things. And they will put incredible intense peer pressure on you for not to have sacred exclusivity in marriage. But you know who has the happiest marriages? People who are sacredly exclusive and living in heterosexual, Christian, monogamous marriage. Statistics prove that. Um, one, what's the, not, not Vogue, but the other... Uh, Vanity Fair magazine did a research on women and their sex life, and they found that the women who had the most satisfying sex life were committed Christian women. Imagine that. The Bible actually is true. That's why it says in verse 24, he shall hold fast to his wife. The word literally means like to be glued or to bonded together. So God's design is for one man and for one woman for one lifetime to be bonded together to where they are inseparable. That's why he says what, man, what God has joined together, what? Let no man tear apart or tear asunder. We are supposed to be glued to our wives and our wives to us in an inseparable way for a lifetime. Now, you say, well, Gary, I, I've already messed that up. Yes, a lot of us have. It doesn't mean you can't start over. Thank God for grace, amen? Thank God for second chances, amen? Thank God for healing of memories in the past, right? So if you've messed up, doesn't mean you can't start over. Now, I'm not saying go out and get a divorce right now. I'm saying make, if, if possible, if possible, make what you've worked, what you've um, done right now, make it last, okay? Even if you're married to someone who doesn't know Christ, the Bible doesn't say you separate unless, they are, unless that's what they want. So it doesn't mean that God doesn't give sex, second chances. Number six, spiritual unity. Leaving, cleaving, this one's the receiving. Verse 24, the third part, it says, they too shall become one flesh. And this is talking about much more. The word flesh here is like when God poured out his spirit on what? All flesh? It means people. They shall become one person. This does give reference to the sexual union, but it's much, much more than that. This is saying emotionally becoming one, mentally, intellectually, as well as physically becoming one person to where you finish each other's 
sandwiches, right? So you, you think like one person. Have you, have you done that before? Don, I'm sure you do that. Where you, you, where you know Karen so well that when you go to the store, when she doesn't answer her cell phone, when you have a question, you say, well, she'd probably want this kind. And you know her well enough. That's what, we, we not only know each other what is on the grocery list, but what's on their prayer list. Where we know each other in an intimate way to where we are a team. And God said that when man was alone, it was not good. So this whole idea of, oh, I'm, I'm just going to do it my way, that's not what's going to make for a good life, let alone for a good marriage. We're supposed to be constantly pursuing the oneness with our spouse. So let me tell you, though, in this spiritual unity, there's three major enemies that are going to fight you on this tooth and nail. In fact, it may fight you so much you might just give up trying to be one. Number one is the world. The world hates monogamy. The world hates heterosexual marriage. The world now is totally making fun of this. I remember one time I was at, getting at, a, at a, a service station getting my oil changed, and I was forced to watch The View. If you actually watch that by choice, you need counseling, I think. Anyway, it's, these ladies were talking about how, you know, this whole idea of one man, one woman for a lifetime, that's so old-fashioned that you actually need a different husband for different stages. You need one husband for your child-rearing days. And one husband for when your kids are grown and gone, and another husband for middle age, and then maybe you retire with a different husband. They, they were serious when they said all this. And you just keep moving from spouse to spouse, and you have different spouses for different seasons of your life. Man, one divorce is hard enough. Imagine putting yourself purposely through that. You can say, well, we'll never get married. We'll just live together. You're telling me it still doesn't hurt when you break up? You're telling me that you're still not going through the pain? But the world is telling us exactly the opposite of what is healthy and good for us. It is proven that people who live in heterosexual monogamous marriages live longer, make more money, and have fewer health problems. I vote for God's pattern, don't you? The world is going to fight you on that. You know what else is going to fight you on that? Your flesh. You see, Adam and Eve didn't have that temptation until sin entered in. And sin will, con your own flesh will tell you, man, the grass is greener on the other side. If I could only start over, I wish I had married her instead of her. Man, why can't my husband be like him? And your flesh will constantly lie to you. And you need to crucify the flesh daily and serve and follow Christ. And the third thing is, is the devil. You know, the world's bad enough on its own, but there is a spiritual dark force out there that will be speaking into your marriage, trying to divide you, trying to make you unhappy in an, what could be otherwise a very happy situation. And how do you win against the devil? Well, how did Jesus win against the devil? He quoted scripture, right? He knew the scriptural principles well enough. Do you know the scriptural principles you need to know to make a, a happy marriage? You need to hold fast to those and not listen to what the world says, what your flesh says, or what the devil says. Number seven, and the last point here, sexual intimacy. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Beautiful picture here of, of the greatest gift God has given, but he didn't just give it to us as something that is meant for erotic pleasure. It's meant to paint a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when a woman receives a man into herself, his, his seed enters into her and gives life. And that's a picture of God's word entering into us, into our hearts when we receive Christ and gives us new life. It's a beautiful picture. That's why Satan hates it. That's why Satan wants to have all kinds of weird combinations that are not from God's word because he wants to distort 
the most beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and his bride of which we get to be a part. Isn't that amazing? That we get to be the bride of Christ. And some people say, well, you know, Gary, the Bible says there's no marriage in heaven for us. That just seems like we're really missing out. Let me just tell you, I don't know what it is in heaven, but it is a million times better than the intimacy you feel with your spouse, which is pretty amazing if you're, if you're in a fortunate situation. But it's what, what, heaven, what, we, what we have in this life, you know, the sweetness of fruit, you know, the hug and a kiss from a spouse, the joy of children, all those are just little samples of what is to come. You know how you walk through Sam's and they've got all the people giving out the samples everywhere, you know? Tammy and I actually went through HB the other day and we're like, we don't even have to have lunch now. We, we sampled enough here, you know? But that's what this life is like. Would you like a little sample? Would you like a little sample? You know? And it's all looking forward to a wedding feast that is much more beautiful than we could ever, ever imagine. First Corinthians comments on this passage in a way that we, let me just read it for, to you. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, becoming a living being, and then the last Adam, who, who was the last Adam? Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. This is what this means. Like Adam, Christ was temporarily put into a deep sleep, which is what Paul calls death, and he had his side cut open, sacrificing his flesh to create a beautiful bride. That's what Genesis 2 is about. Jesus Christ giving his flesh to give new life to the bride of Christ. Are you part of the bride of Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? The Bible says in Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his wife, the church, his body, and is himself the, its Savior. And that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He was the husband who sacrificed his life for his wife, for his bride. Do you know him personally as your Lord and Savior? The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord Jesus, I give everything to you. Take my, all my decisions, my marital decisions, my financial decisions, everything. Take all I am, and I believe that you were died for my sins, you were buried, and God rose you from the dead. If you will do those two things, you will trust Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you will be saved. And here's why. For with your heart you believe and you're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. And with the mouth you confess and you're saved when you confess Christ as Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much that Christ is the last Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus Christ as the second Adam succeeded. And as the first Adam was cut open to give a life to his beautiful wife, Jesus Christ had his side open and his hands pierced and his feet pierced so that he could give life to us, the bride of Christ, his church. Father, we pray that if there's someone here today that does not know Christ as Savior, that they would accept him as the Lord and Savior of their life today. They would not put this decision off. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what you've done in this church and how we get to be the bride of Christ here and that we pray that you would always be the head of this church, that no man would ever be in charge, but that you would always be the one that is setting the tempo and the vision and the values and the goals for this church. They would always be part of your kingdom and not the will of man. We thank you of all this in Christ's name and God's church said, amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, I'd like to talk to you about that. Here's my cell phone number. Give me a call or text me anytime. 
And let me ask you, do, is there someone you know that you wish was sitting right here with you to hear this? Why not pray and, and pray for them and invite them to join you next Sunday? Um, there is an excellent reading plan that we, about 27 of us are doing. You're welcome to join us on the version. It's called Origins, and it's about a 51-day reading plan. If you want the link to that, just text me. I'll be glad to send it to you. So um, Amanda's over there, right? So Tori, can you help me? Okay, you're going you're gonna to help, okay? How's it going, Bob? I'm good. Good. I haven't been up on this stage in a long time. Well, here's a microphone for you, I think. Hey, can hey. you hear me? So you're going to help me with question and answer? You're closer to God up here, aren't you? <laughs> I don't think it works that Is way. Is that why you preach so good? <laughs> I have no comment on that, so... Um, Let's see here. Really, so we're, I feel much closer. There was a question that was from last week that I wanted to find. Well, I know what it is. Let me see. But I still want you to read it. Man, where did it go? Come on. I am Isaiah, ask that question out loud. Isaiah texted to me, but I, in fact, he did it for Seth. So one of y'all can read. Seth, what was your question from last week? Why don't Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate birthdays? So here's this one from Greg, and here's one here also. Okay. Good question. Um, so there's two people in the Bible that celebrate their birthday. And one was Herod, right? And that ended up getting John the Baptist's head cut off. And I believe the other was Pharaoh. I could be wrong on that one. But they're two evil people, and their birthdays turned into really bad celebrations. So they say, well, the Bible has nothing good to say about birthdays, so... We're not going to celebrate birthdays. That's what it comes down to. Well, that, it's just, those are examples of how to do it wrong. <laughs> so why don't we just do it right? And you don't, and you, one of the things that we as parents could do, and a lot of you do a good job with this, is set your kids up that it's not all about them. We've all been to the birthday party with a brat. It's like, I wanted this, and I wanted a yellow cake, whatever. And they're just, because they, they were set up that today is my day, my day, my day. And then when everything didn't go perfectly, they have a meltdown. So I've seen a lot, of pres a lot of parents will have their kids have, you know, the thank you gifts, and they thank everybody for coming to their party. And, you know, and then also a good idea for you as adults is someday pick a year to donate your birthday and just say, hey, rather than presents or whatever, would you give money to this cause uh, for my birthday? That's a good way to celebrate. But I don't think there's a strong enough case in the Bible to say we shouldn't have birthdays. Um, yeah, I'll let it there, there. Does the Bible talk about Creating other planets. Um, well, there's a Bible. The Bible says God created the heavens, which would include all the galaxies out there. So under that umbrella would be the planets. Uh, a friend of mine, Dwayne Pollard, who's a pastor up in um, central Texas, he has an interesting theory that God created these innumerable number of planets because if Adam and Eve didn't fall, that eventually this planet would be full and we'd go to another planet and fill it, another planet and fill it, which is interesting. But you know what's weird is the Mormons have the same theory. They believe that as God, God is, man will become. In other words, someday you're going to be your own God and you'll have your own planet and you'll have your own Adam and Eve and you'll do all that over again. That's why they used to believe in polygamy because you're going to need a lot of wives to populate your own planet out there in some galaxy. That's Mormonism for you. Anyway, so. There, and okay, there's one Mark, from Greg there. Mark 12, 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like angels in heaven. In what ways will we be like angels in heaven? Why would God create marriage in Genesis 2 before the fall, but throw it out in the resurrection? Great, great question. So the context answers the first question. We will be like angels in so much that we will not marry, period. Don't read into that that we'll have wings. I really get annoyed at funerals and people say, well, they've earned their wings. Like, no, no, they haven't. You know, we are much more loved than the angels. Um, the, the fact the angels are jealous of the gospel, that Christ would do all this for us that he did not do for fallen angels. Um, so you're not, you, do, you never were an angel. You never will be an angel. You're a human being created in the image of God. So um, it's only saying they'll be like the angels in, in so much that they will not be married because angels don't marry and in heaven we won't. That's not God something taken away from us. It's giving us something better. So he didn't, he gave us marriage in Genesis 2 to be a picture of what he's going to give us in the eternal kingdom that is much better than our earthly marriage. And again, I don't know how it is, but it'd be kind of like when your kids are playing in a mud puddle and you say, and actually it's C.S. Lewis who talks about this, you know, that you want to go on a holiday to the beach. And the kid's like, no, I'm happy here playing in the mud puddle. And like, but you want to see the ocean. Like, ocean, what's an ocean? And then this little kid has no concept of what the ocean looks like and how beautiful the waves are and playing in the sand and building sandcastles and all that stuff. So they're just in their mud puddle and they're happy. Well, we're living in a mud puddle. We have no concept of what the ocean is like if we've never seen it. And that's what eternity will be like. Did I answer all parts of that question? I believe so. Okay. I have to ask, ask Greg. Did I cover that all? Okay, good. Okay. Uh, who is the best pastor in... Uh, Houston. <laughs> it's not Joel. Um, let's see. <laughs> I don't know. Who would be? There's a lot of great pastors for sure. Do you like the song by Tim McGraw, Touchdown Jesus? No. No. I, I don't even know what song it is, but um, if it's, it sounds like it's country, and you know, you know where I stand on country, so... <laughs> It was really a good Sunday. <laughs> okay, so obviously I'm up here for a different reason, and I'm, I regret to, to note that uh, Pastor Stan has left. Uh, this is Pastor Appreciation Sunday, and the reason that I'm up here is because we want to recognize Gary for being the best pastor in Houston, right? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And uh, I got some cards over here. Hold on a second. I had to hide them up here before service. You did a good job hiding them. Uh, hide them in the rock. Okay. So I'm still going to go through and uh, read Stan's card, even though he, he left. Um, because Stan is really uh, has blessed Amen. Revolution Church, and hopefully Amen. Revolution Church has blessed Bethel Church. Yeah. But anyway, it says, God bless you, Pastor. The Lord has called and gifted you to bless you and make you a blessing. As you rest in him, he will work. As you trust in his ways, he will accomplish his purpose. Amen. And it says, 
on the inside. May you sense God's pleasure in your faithful serving and know that you are very much appreciated for all you do. And, of course, I have a gift card uh, in here and a check for Pastor Stan. <clears throat> now we get to uh, Pastor Gary. How many of you all appreciate Pastor Gary? Thank you. You know, we were at an uh, uh, elder board meeting, uh, and we were talking about, you know, why do people come here? Why do people stay? And I can tell you the reason that I am here is because of Pastor Gary. When he decided to leave the other church where, where he was an associate pastor and start new, we decided to follow him, <clears throat> and we're glad that we did. So basically, Pastor, in you, God made a guide who would lead us in his ways. In you, he gave a teacher who would remind us of his truth. In you, he gave a servant who would share with us his love. In you, God gave us so many wonderful blessings. Thank you, your Revolution family. Amen. Well, thank you. And I wanted to, uh, Jeremiah 3.15 says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. And I believe he's done that. So Thank you, Lord. So we also, we have a, a, a gift card. This is really for Tammy. <laughs> um $100 to the uh, Texas Roadhouse, okay? That ought to get a couple of uh, meals out of it, huh? And we also, uh, and, and I want to say, you know, Gary uh, says at the beginning of the service, thank you for being a generous church, and, and this is truly a generous church, okay? As a treasurer, I've seen things that I, you know, you just wouldn't believe. And y'all have always stepped up. Y'all are always there when we need you. And when I sent out the text about pastor appreciation, you know, I'm thinking inflation is high. Everybody is feeling it. Uh, we all, I sent out a letter two months ago uh, telling you that, you know, our church is operating at a deficit and, you know, we need to do something. And y'all stepped up. And y'all did step up again for pastor appreciation. And we have a check here for Gary for $2,000. Wow. Thank you. So, Anyway, thank you very much, and thank you. And I also want to tell you I have a secret. You want to know what my secret is? I got to taste the brisket. And it is delicious. Oh, I'm sure. I'm okay? Y'all are going to be thrilled, except now I need a toothpick. So. Well, stay, Bob, stay here, and um, why don't you bless the food for okay. us? Okay, super. All right. Father God, we just, we love you. We, we search for you. We reach out for you. We need you. And as we come together every Sunday, it's so wonderful to be with all of our, our fellow believers, all of our fellow worshipers, and we just ask, Lord, that as we go into this time of fellowship together after the service, where we can uh, get to know each other better, 
where we can partake and, and break bread together and, and eat this wonderful food that's been prepared for us. We ask, Lord, that you bless this food. And as it, it enters our body, it, it nourishes us and it, it, and it creates health for us and keep us healthy, Lord. I, pray, I, I ask for protection for us over the COVID virus. Any other virus, Lord, you are our protector. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Uh, be with us as we enter this time of fellowship and, and uh, just bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.